Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. As we try to navigate the ever-increasing complexity of life in America, today I want to lay out a specific challenge to all of us church people. Now, if you're not a church person, or if you used to be a church person, I think you're going to enjoy today's message. Because today's message may explain in part why you're not a church person, or maybe why you're not a church person anymore. If you were raised in a church similar to the church that I was raised in, you discovered really early on that becoming a Christian is easy. I mean, truthfully, it costs us virtually nothing, right? Jesus died on the cross for our sins. The price has been paid. We put our faith in Jesus, and then we're Christians. That's what's so amazing about this. The price has been paid for you. You simply receive the free gift of salvation and forgiveness, and then you can call yourself, and I can call myself, a Christian. Becoming a Christian is easy. But, and my guess is you probably know this, when you open the pages of the Gospels and when you read the letters of the Apostle Paul, you don't read anything about anybody becoming a Christian. In fact, the first century Christians didn't even call themselves Christians. That's what non-Christians called them. And it was probably a slur or a derogatory term. It literally meant one associated with Christ. And this wasn't like a static label, like you know, being an American or being a Canadian. It actually indicated a way of life. And the term only shows up in the Bible three times. Luke, who described the events following the resurrection of Jesus, actually documented the first time this term appears in history. And it happened in the city of Antioch. But, but here's the interesting thing. In telling us how the label originated, Luke actually clarifies what it meant or, or what it meant back then. Maybe not what it means today. Here's what Luke writes in the book of Acts. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. This raises a question for us, doesn't it? Like, who were the disciples? He's not talking about the 12 apostles, right? This referred to, to the, the broader group of people. In fact, in the Gospels, and we've talked about this before, the term disciple always referred to Jesus' followers, people who publicly associated with Jesus before his crucifixion and the people who followed his teachings after his resurrection. Now, one of the reasons that we think the term Christian might have been a derogatory term is because first century followers of Jesus were accused of being part of a cult, or they called it a sect. Specifically, they referred to people who were part of a Nazarene sect. And the reason, of course, that they called it a Nazarene sect is because their teacher, Jesus, was from Nazareth. There was something unusual about these people that set them apart from their idol-worshiping friends in Antioch. So the citizens of Antioch felt pressed to come up with a name of, of or a name for, rather, these people. And they couldn't just call them disciples because lots of teachers and philosophers and rabbis, they all had disciples. So they came up with a term and they called them the followers of Jesus or disciples of Jesus or Christians. This is challenging for us and this is challenging for me and you may be comfortable or maybe even not comfortable claiming the badge or title of Christian the way that we use the term right now. But here's the question I want us to wrestle with for a few minutes today. It's easy to say I'm a Christian, but are we, are you and am I a Jesus follower? Are we following or are we simply believing it? Am I following his example or am I just trying to be a good example? And that's a terrifying question. It's a terrifying question because you and I can define or redefine the term Christian until we're fine with our faith or our approach to faith. And the reason we can do that is because neither Jesus nor anybody in the Bible clearly defines what it means to be a Christian. But a Jesus follower? That really doesn't need defining, does it? Becoming a Christian is easy. It won't cost you anything. Following Jesus, it will always cost us something. And it costs some people more than others. Here's what we know from history. The ones it cost the most were the ones that made the most difference. 
as we talk all, all the time, Jesus came to earth to introduce the kingdom of God to earth. He was the king who came to kind of reverse the order of things. So to follow Jesus then and to follow Jesus now requires us to live in a different direction, to some extent, to be countercultural. And this was certainly the case in the first century. And Jesus made this abundantly clear right out of the gate. In his most famous sermon, we refer to this as the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what happened. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, because there were always crowds gathering, he went up to the mountainside, hence the name Sermon on the Mount, and he sat down. His disciples or his followers, they came to him and he began to teach them. And the crowd had no idea how lucky they were. I mean, just think about that. They don't know this. They have no idea what they're experiencing. They are at the Sermon on the Mount. It's like, are you kidding me? What an honor. What a privilege. And they have no idea. They're spectators. They're just part of the audience for this, this teaching from Jesus. They participated in an event that would shape Western civilization and would reshape cultural norms and values. So Jesus stands up in front of this large crowd and he turns everything upside down. Get this. He says, love your enemies. Give away your stuff. And when somebody asks for a little, give them a lot. And when somebody wants to borrow from you, let them borrow and then don't ask for it back. Go the extra mile. Turn your, the other cheek. Oh, you, 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 you know, you can't make things right with God if, if you don't make things right with the people around you. Don't think for a minute you can have peace with God if you don't have peace with, with the people in your family. If you're standing in the temple and you're about to offer your sacrifice for your sin and there are three people in front of you and you've been standing there for hours waiting and then suddenly it dawns on you that you've mistreated your brother or your sister, this is amazing. He says, leave your sacrifice. Leave it there in the temple and go home and make things right with your brother or your sister because you can't be right with God if you're not right with your brother, if you're not right with your sister, if you're not right with your, your family or your neighbors. Hey, hey, stop staring at that little speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and clean out your own eye. And then you'll be able to see your brother better and you'll be able to help your brother better. He said, you've heard it said eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Not anymore, not in my kingdom. Blessed are those who curse you. I mean, this was epic. It was disturbing. He literally turned the entire value system upside down. And then he heads to Capernaum. When Jesus had finished saying these things, and that was just a summary. You should read the Sermon on the Mount. It's crazy. The crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. And when Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. Nothing like this had ever happened before. I mean, John the Baptist, he was kind of the warm-up act, right? He attracted thousands and thousands of people. John had some crowds, but, but nothing like this. This was different. Jesus, Jesus was different. He spoke as one who had authority. And maybe, just maybe, this was the Messiah we've been waiting for. Then a man with leprosy came and he knelt before him, before Jesus. And the crowd kind of stops. And they kind of make space because nobody wants to get too close to this guy. And he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, Jesus had just taught, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Those are big words. What's he gonna do? The crowd stops and waits. Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the man. I love this part. He said, I am willing, be clean. And immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. And the crowd goes wild. I mean, this guy is like, he's walking his talk. He's, he's doing for others. He's the real deal. He's actually gonna live out these extraordinary values that didn't make any sense to us. <clears throat> they don't seem to make any sense or fit in our culture at all, but he's doing it. Then all of a sudden the mood changes. And what happens next is completely lost on us. But it wasn't lost on Matthew's first century audience. They understood this. Here's what happened. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. 
and the world stood still. This was beyond awkward. Love your enemy, do for others, go the extra mile. These are great one-liners, but they don't apply to this guy, right? I mean, healing sick Jewish people, that's one thing. This, this is a whole other thing. So let me give you a little bit of historical context because, again, we don't understand the gravity or, or the tension or the emotion of this moment, but everybody in Matthew's audience did. Here's a little background. About 100 years before this event, General Pompey enters the city of Jerusalem and desecrates the temple and the Holy of Holies. Pompey was curious to see this Jewish God that he'd heard so much about. The Jewish God that was so easily offended and who considered himself too good to be a part of any pantheon of gods. A God that was so good that he claimed to be the only God. And so he brushed aside the priests and he boldly went into where only the high priest had gone before, right into the Holy of Holies. He pulls aside the huge over-engineered curtain that separated the God chamber from the outer court and he walks into the Holy of Holies. He looks around and he is so disappointed because there's no God. There's no idol. There's a golden table and a candlestick and maybe 2,000 talents of gold, but no God. And he probably thinks to himself, these Jews are crazy. They built such an elaborate, gorgeous structure, a physical structure with no physical representation of a God. I mean, what good is a God you can't see? And then he left and he took thousands of Jews with him. Galileans and Judeans, again, lost their independence. And they're forced to pay taxes to their pagan conqueror. Years later, another general shows up, Crassus. He actually goes into the temple and he steals all the Jewish wealth, all the temple taxes, everything he could find. And he takes it with him to Rome. And then in 40 BC, Herod the Great was crowned king of the Jews by the Roman Senate. Of course, this was a problem for the Jews because Herod wasn't Jewish at all. He had murdered multiple rabbis and his son was responsible for executing John the Baptist. Then when Jesus was somewhere in his 20s, Rome commissioned Pontius Pilate to be the governor of Judea. And Pilate was given credit for introducing crucifixion to the Galilean and the uh, Judean landscape. He was constantly offending the Jews on purpose. He too stole money from the temple treasury. In fact, Pilate was so cruel that he was actually recalled back to Rome because of his violence towards Jews and Samaritans. And eventually he committed suicide. The point simply being this, that anything and everything that that was associated with Rome was evil to the Jews. There was too much history, but it got worse. This was not just a common soldier. This was a centurion asking for, a, for Jewish help. This is a man who earned his rank and authority through violence. He obeyed without question or conscience. Centurions were severe disciplinarians. They actually flogged their own men and on occasion executed their own soldiers. This was the context. This was the tension. This was the emotion that hung in the air that afternoon on the outskirts of Capernaum as Jesus is stopped by a centurion asking for help. The centurion represented everything Jesus had a right to hate. Personally, nationally, ethnically, religiously, it was all wrong. And the world stood there and the world was silent as the centurion asked for help. Have you ever been there? My guess is we've all kind of been there, right? You want a job recommendation? Are you kidding me? After the way you treated me, after the way you treated our employees, you want me to give you a good recommendation? Wait, 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 you, you want to borrow money? No, no, you want to borrow more money because you haven't paid me for the, la- the last time you borrowed money from me. Wait, you're looking for a second chance? Are you kidding? This is your third second chance. You've had three second chances and, and, and now you want another. Oh, so now you're coming to my house for Christmas. Have you forgotten how you treated me and my wife last Christmas? Oh, you need a place to stay. Well, the last time you need a place to stay, it was three months and you never said thank you, never offered to help pay the bills. There is just too much history. Now, this is what we have in common. Isn't it true that, that if, if I want to help, rather, if I want you to help a stranger who's never done anything for you or to you, you'd be okay with that, right? 
In terms of helping someone I don't know that's never done anything for me or to me, I'm all for that, aren't you? It feels good. But doing good for somebody who hurt me or doing good for somebody who reminds me of someone who hurt me or, or someone that hurt someone I love, it's too much. Becoming a Christian is easy. Salvation is free. It will cost you nothing. Following Jesus, moving beyond what's expected, that's difficult. It's unnatural. It's beyond natural, perhaps even supernatural. And maybe that's Jesus' point. If you do good only for those who do good for you, there's nothing unusual about you. Even sinners do that, Jesus said. That's commonplace. So there they stand. And the question was, what will Jesus do? They'd heard what he'd preached, but what would he do? Perhaps you've read the story. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant is at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. And it's like, wait, 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 hang on. You're suddenly concerned about someone suffering terribly, are you? Really, like the nerve of you. As a Roman centurion, you personally, like you personify suffering terribly. You call suffering for, for all of us who are living. Our lives are, have been ruined because of you, because of the suffering you enacted on us. I mean, granting this man's request, it would potentially be dangerous for Jesus. He could lose the crowd. He would lose the patriots. He would lose the working class. This could be the end of the mission. But Jesus had come to introduce a new kind of kingdom. He'd come to introduce a new morality, a new ethic, a new way of seeing the world, and maybe more importantly, a new way of seeing everybody in the world. And so in keeping with his own teaching, to illustrate what he had just taught, he chose to do for someone who represented the empire, who had done unimaginable harm to his people, the same empire that in the end would oversee his own crucifixion. Jesus says to him, sure, shall I come and heal him? And I'm telling you, the Jews in the crowd are like, this Jesus, this is just too much. This is too far. The centurion replied, Lord, I don't, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. And then in an extraordinary expression of faith, he says this, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Jesus, you and I aren't so different. Like you, I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and I tell that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. And then Jesus, again, to maybe to shock the crowd, he comm commends the centurion for his faith. And he says, go, let it be done, just as you believed it would. And then I think he pauses and he maybe perhaps looks over his shoulder and smiles at the crowd. And then he heads to Peter's house for a bite of lunch. And once again, the crowd is stunned. He spoke as one with authority. He's matching his words with his deeds. He wasn't kidding. He actually expects us to literally do good for those who don't or won't do good for us. He expects us to literally do good for those who don't look like us or live like us. He expects us to do good for people who don't even like us. So back to us. It's no wonder that we reduce our faith to a label, right? It's no wonder that we're content to take notes and feel bad about ourselves for a moment and then just retreat to whatever is comfortable. It's easy to be a Christian. It's easier to be a Christian than it is to be a Jesus follower. It's easier to be good to strangers who haven't offended us. Look, it's easier to be nice to people who look like me and act like me, who live like me and agree with me. It's easier to be a Christian than to be a Jesus follower. And if that's what we choose, we'll contribute to the challenges we are wrestling with as a nation today. Because... If you don't choose to follow Jesus, you will be content to simply believe. You'll believe all the right things, right? All men and women are created in the image of God, that they're all created equal, that they have intrinsic worth, that they have been divinely assigned value. You'll agree with C.S. Lewis, who made this extraordinary statement. There are no ordinary people. There are no mere mortals. 
You'll believe from the bottom of your heart that a person's value and dignity is not assigned by men, but it is assigned by God. But if you have not decided to follow Jesus, it just ends there. It ends with correct belief. If we don't decide to follow Jesus, we will not act on what we believe, when it co- even when it costs us something. We will, we will not react when we see people treated unjustly, unkindly, or unfairly. Now, here's the really interesting thing. Apparently, Jesus saw this coming. Apparently, Jesus saw us coming. He seemed to have anticipated a generation that would be content to know, but not do. For those who are content to sit and listen and nod, but refuse to follow, here is Jesus' closing statement in his most famous sermon. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man. Or in other words, they're a fool. They're a fool because he or she will have fooled themselves into thinking they're better, they're okay, they're better than they really are that they have found favor with God and they really don't possess it. It's like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and then the rains came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and they beat against the house and it fell with a great crash. So here's what I want to leave you with. The men and women who make a difference in the world are not the men and women who believe right. They are the men and women who act and react when something isn't right, even when it costs them something. So here's my invitation to you, to all of us. Let's not be content with just being a Christian. Let's follow. Let's continue to do good for those who can't or won't do good for themselves. And when the centurions in our world show up, let's remember this, no matter how much this bothers us. But God demonstrated his own love toward us that while we were yet centurions, Christ died for us. And then he rose from the dead. And from the pages of the New Testament, he looks at you and he looks at me, he looks at all of us and he says, follow me. Follow me. And together we will astonish the world with this brand new kind of love where everything has changed. It's, it's easy to be a Christian. It's way more challenging to be a Jesus follower. But it's Jesus followers that change the world with the brand new ethic of love. Here's the thing. Jesus never invited anyone to be a Christian. He invited us to follow. So let me ask you this as I close. Will you follow Would you be willing to take a step in that direction? Would you be willing to say, I'm not content enough just to know, just to believe, but I'm ready to do? This morning, would you be willing to follow? And if you would, would you say this prayer with me? Heavenly Father, God, I've heard before, I've heard so many times, maybe my my grandmother or my parents or my my, my teacher or a friend, they've told me, and, and God, for years I've known, but I've never done God, I pray that in this moment, you forgive me for my sin. Today, I will follow Jesus and I will do good for those, God, that maybe don't deserve it, that maybe have never done good for me or to me or anyone that I know or love. But I will follow Jesus and I will be countercultural and I will love those, God, who are hard to love. And I will do good, God, even when harm is done to me. God, I pray that you would be with the person that says that prayer. I pray that you would give them the courage, God, to say that prayer. That even now, God, to rewind back just a few minutes and say, nope, I'm ready. Today, I want to follow Jesus. Today, I'm willing to make a change because because what I see in the world is no good. The harm I see, the the division I see, God, God, the returning harm for harm, the eye for an eye, the tooth for the tooth, God, that that is not the way of Jesus. That is the way of the world, and I'm ready for something different. Would you give them, would you give us the courage, God, to take a step in that direction and say, being a Christian isn't good enough. I want to 
follow Jesus. I want to follow Jesus even when it costs me something. And God, would you give them the wisdom to take that step? God, would you help us, God, the church, to bring in this brand new, God, upside down, world-changing, value-shifting kind of love that you initiated. And I pray all these things in your son, our savior, Jesus' name. Amen. Journey, I love you. And there is nothing you can do about it. I know times are divisive. I know times are hard. But now more than ever, we are called to love. And I pray that would be what you, what you, what we, what the church becomes known for. Love. Loving our neighbors. Loving our family. Loving our friends. Loving our enemies. I can't wait to see you again. Mark your calendar. September 13th. We'll be back in this facility again for in-person gatherings. Not exactly sure what it's going to look like. Would you pray for us? Would you pray for your leadership as we continue to, to make the best decisions we can to love people and to minister the gospel to them? Thank you. Love you. I'll see you next time. God bless.